This podcast is brought to you by Pastor Stormy Swan and Faith Christian Family Church of Lubbock, Texas. For more information, please visit faithchurchlubbock.com. Once you've got a Bible, go with me to the book of Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2. Now, this is our fifth week of the last hurrah and... Oh, we'll skip next week for Father's Day, and then we'll jump back in it, I believe, probably in two weeks. Some of it, some things we hadn't talked about yet, but I encourage you to listen to the podcast or get the CDs, and uh, just let the, the, the scriptures come alive to you. Again, my prayer for every one of us this morning is that the eyes of our understanding be enlightened, that the Lord help us to focus today, and that the Lord just, he, he has a wake-up call, I believe, for us. So we begin this morning... In the book of Judges chapter 2, verse number 8. Now Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of God, he died when he was 110 years old. And so they buried him. Verse 10. And when all the generation had been gathered to the fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord. Now the, the phrase there, he did not know the Lord, it literally means they did not acknowledge him or serve him nor the work which he had done for Israel. So what begins to happen to a nation is when the things that God has done for a nation aren't talked about, aren't reminded to the younger generations, we get away from the things of God. And right now in our world, there's a view that is away from Yahweh as God. Now 63% of all teenagers right now they believe whether you're Muslim, Buddhist, Christian, or even Mormon, That they all pray to the same God. Now this is what happens when we start or we stop talking about who God really is. And you know in the the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 verse 3. God said this. He said, have no other gods before me. He's the only God. There is no other God, okay. He's the creator of all gods. And we must remember that and we must keep getting a hold of that. That is part of our godly heritage, even in America. And that's why America, and I say was blessed, because we're rapidly drifting from the things of God in our society. And so, you know, I'm not asking you to vote this year as a Christian. I'm asking you to vote as an American. And not only to vote, but vote the Bible, okay? Don't vote other things. Vote for people that will honor the word of God. Here's a thought for you about government. Does government function under divine authority or does government function as divine authority? And it's huge because there's a huge difference in it. And our nation, our constitution has the things of God woven in and out of it. And so we can never get away from that. Now, watch what takes place here to this next generation. Verse uh, verse 11. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They served the Baals. They forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. And so you see here the man of God Joshua dies. And before long the nation of Israel is spiraling out of control. Go to the book of, or the last book of Judges, Judges 21. And I want to read the very last verse of this. And it says some profound things here as the book of Judges comes to a close. Judges 21 verse 25. 
In those days, there was no king in Israel. And every one did what was right in his own eyes. Sounds good, but it's not good. That when people begin to determine and dictate what's right and wrong in their own eyes, you're going to see a nation decay morally rather quickly. Because God is the God who sets the standards, we don't. And so right here it shows part of the reason they got in so much trouble is they quit doing what God asked them to do. And a nation that makes themselves the final authority over God and doesn't reference God is a nation that evil and wickedness will begin to abound. And so I say that because to a degree this is the times we're living in right now. And the sign of the end times when Noah and Lot were alive, which were some of our main scripture texts, is Luke 17 on that. It said the people begin to get away from hearing the things of God. They didn't want to hear Jesus preach. They didn't want to hear any of that. In other words, they said, we don't want anyone telling us how to live. And because of it, it caused great, great damage. So much damage that God flooded one. And the other one he devoured with fire and brimstone. Now, go with me into the New Testament to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. And as you're turning there, I'm going to throw two verses in there that will kind of set the the stage on where I'm headed here. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2. And then again, Proverbs chapter 30, verse 6. It says, do not add to the word of God. Or do not take away from the word of God. That's for every one of us in here, okay? We're not to add to the word of God. And we're not to take away from the word of God. The word of God is just fine without our opinion, okay? God didn't need our opinion or our expertise to decide how this place should go. He set everything in motion. He set so much in motion that he said heaven and earth will pass away. But my word will never pass away. That word of God is going to be around forever. So we begin here, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. He asks some questions here. This is the Apostle Paul. And he says, where is the wise or the philosopher? Where is the scribe or the scholar? Where is the disputer or the debater of this age? And when we talk about a debater of the age right here, it's a person that will have a worldview that's alienated from the things of God. I don't want to hear about God. So again, he's asking this question. Where's the philosopher? Where's the scholar? Where is the debater? Now look what he makes the next comment at the end. He says, has God not made the foolish the wisdom of this world? In other words, what he's saying there, God makes the wisdom of this world looks foolish. And many times when we listen to the wisdom of the world... We think things like this, well, it sounds reasonable, it sounds even practical, it sounds even good, but it's totally contrary to the Word of God and totally contrary to the plan of salvation that God set up that is only through Jesus. Keep reading, verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. Now... Human wisdom, man, it's not going to figure out the things of God. 
It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Now, literally what this is saying, the world views preachers as foolish. But God said he used the foolishness of a preacher to save mankind. And so when a, a, a preacher preaches the word of God, something begins to happen to people. There becomes a conviction in your heart and people begin to realize there's got to be more to life than what I'm living. How many of you in here have ever experienced that? That was me. And at a young age, I realized I didn't know the things. I didn't know anything about God. And I realized something's wrong in my life. Keep reading. It gets real interesting here with what he goes on to say. Verse 22. For Jews or the foolish Jews request the sign from heaven. And the Greeks or the foolish Greeks, they seek after wisdom or human wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. That's it. My whole basis is we preach Christ crucified. Other words, the blood of Jesus and his broken body and what he did on that cross for me and you. And so in a nutshell, that's what my salvation and your salvation is based on right there. We preach Jesus crucified. Point blank. Now in saying that, there's a man, some of you will remember the name. His name's Ted Turner. Ted Turner is the owner of the TV stations TNT, TBS, and CNN or Cable News Network. Now, with what I'm getting ready to say about Ted Turner, you'll figure out, if you ever watch CNN, why some of the stuff they broadcast is what it is. But in 1990, Ted Turner was viewed as the humanist or the humanist man of the year. And on receiving that award, he had three major statements he made. Number one, he said, I didn't need anyone to die for me. He went on to say with that statement, he said, if I did certain things in my life that would send me to hell, so be it. But I didn't need anyone to die for me. His second major statement that he said was that Christianity is a religion for losers. People that can't do anything for themselves. You know what about that? That's me. I can't do anything about myself. Thank God I got a savior. Thank God. The third thing he said was the Ten Commandments are outdated. They're of no good anymore. And so we preach Christ Jesus, but look what he says in this passage here. He says, the preaching of Christ Jesus to the Jews is a stumbling block. It's offensive to the Jews. They wouldn't receive Jesus. And he ends this verse and he says, and to the Greeks, the preaching of, of the crucified Christ is foolishness or nonsense. It looked foolish to the world. Verse 25, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is still stronger than men. And so when I look at this, God's foolishness, if there is any in that, would still be wiser than the wisest man could ever be. Now I'm going to throw a couple 
facts and statements out here that may seem shocking to you, okay? 80% of all people claiming to be born-again Christians now adopt the New Age or the postmodern error thinking in relationship to the truth. In other words, there's more truth in the Word of God. In the area of morals, if it feels good, do it. And even ethics. Now, did you hear what I just said? 80% of born-again Christians have a thought that there's other means to truth, to morals, and to, e- to, to ethics. And so the postmodern era literally takes us away from the things of God. It trends to be anti-God. And many times as born-again Christians, we don't even realize the pull that humanity is pulling on every one of us. And let me make a statement to you because this is what happens with many of us. As, as Christians, we walk this aisle, we receive Jesus as Lord of our lives, and then we tell Jesus how we're going to live our lives. It, it doesn't, it doesn't equivalate, okay? It doesn't jive, okay? Again, as Jesus is Lord of my life, I'm going to live by the way he tells me. He says in John 14, 15, if you love me, obey me. And so when reading this and I see 80% of born-again Christians have that thinking, there's other ways to the truth. I thought, Lord, is this just now happening in our society? And then I remember back in the book of, of Numbers, when the Israelites were coming out of Egypt and going to the promised land. And if you remember the story, Moses said, I'm going to send 12 spies to the promised land to check it out. And out of those 12 spies, 10 of them came back and said, we can't do it. There's no way we can do it. But two of them, a man named Caleb and a man named Joshua said, we can do it. And so when you look at the percentages back then of the ones who would rather go by the way humans look at things, humans' wisdom and human reasoning, it's over 80% of them back then. So things haven't changed. But again, who are we to take away from the word or to add to the word? So to be a child of the God, I'm going to say, man, I got to live for God. I got to live by the word of God. No other way. Now, go with me to the book of Revelations, chapter number two. And as you're turning there, in a Christian's life, there has to be a separation. A separation from compromising the things of God for the things of the world. I'm not telling you to dispose of the things of the world. I live in this world. I partake of these things of this world. I just don't depend on these things. But to live for God, there must be a separation of compromise, okay? Now, as we go into the book of Revelations 2, in Revelations 2 and Revelations 3, the Lord Jesus himself, he wrote to seven different churches, I want to take one of them, and if you'll begin with me in Revelations 2, verse 12, look at the subtitle above verse 12. He writes to what he called the compromising church. Keep reading with me as we begin, verse 12. 
And to the angel of the church in Pergamos right Now, Pergamos represents the church from the 4th through the 7th centuries. But, I, I, and let me fill in the blanks here a little bit about this city called Pergamos, okay? Pergamos at the time when Jesus wrote this was a Greek culture center. There was a lot of culture there. Second of all, it was a city of higher education. And third, it was a center of four major occults. Okay? So you got culture, you got education, and you got occults all right there. So we keep reading. These things says he who has or wills the sharp two-edged sword. Now, when we look at the two-edged sword here, it has kind of a double meaning. The first one is the two-edged sword can represent Jesus' authority and his judgment. It's going to happen. The second part of the sword could mean a separation, a cutting. Was he saying there that there'll be a separation from the world, uh, the godly and the ungodly? Could it be the sheep and the goats that he's talking about? Verse 13, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now, right here, he's describing this city of Pergamos, and he says, this is a city where the devil has a throne. You know what that means? Pergamos was a very, very, very dark place. And we have dark cities in America. How many of you have ever gone into a city in America and you're there for a few days and you say, man, we got to get out of here. Like Las Vegas. Why? It's dark. Now, understand this. When I talk about a dark city even like Las Vegas, that doesn't mean there's not righteous people there. There's godly people in those places. And watch what happens here because the Lord Jesus will describe it. Keep reading. And you hold fast to my name. And you did not deny my faith. Even in the days in which Antipas, my faithful martyr, was killed among you. Where Satan dwells or on Satan's turf. So what he's telling me right here. That there were people in the city of, of Pergamos at this time. Who were loyal to God. They wouldn't renounce the name of Jesus. Even though they were under credible pressure. To compromise the things of God. They still wouldn't do it. They'd say, uh-uh. We're going to live for the Lord. And this guy named Antipas in this verse here, there's nothing I can find about Antipas except this. That he died as a martyr for the kingdom of God. Now, when I look at people like that, I have to put myself in, in their position. Let me ask you right now, what would happen if you were put before a firing squad right now and they said, you renounce the name of Jesus or you die? Now, in theory right now, everyone is out. oh, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to run. No, that's not what we're going to do. I mean, we all have this thought, I'll stand there. In the name of Jesus. But when it actually comes down to it, what would you do? And this guy right here, 
He was so in love with Jesus, so in love with the things of God. He said, I'm not going to compromise or I'm not going to bow to the pressures that you're trying to put on me. And so in our society, do we have pressures? We have pressures every day. We have things that try to gain our attention, that try to get us to compromise on a daily basis. He goes on to say in verse 14. Now, this is Jesus talking to the church. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Now he's coming after the group of this church right here and he says, listen guys, I got some things against you too. You're over into worshiping idols. And an idol just isn't a wooden thing. An idol's anything that takes the place of God in my life. I could have a list of them. But he also got after him and he says, And you, Yahoos, are in sexual immorality. In other words, you're living in sexual sin. Verse 15. Thus, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. So you know what he says to this group here that were with the Nicolaitans here? Their problem was idolatry and sexual sin also. And if you'll notice there, he said the things I hate. And if we were go back to Revelations 2 verse 6, he talks about the sins of the Nicolaitans. And he says to another church there, he said, you hate them and I hate them. That's very powerful, I think, when we hate what God hates and we love what God loves. Anytime I can get over there. But in this sense right here, he's telling the church, you've compromised. You've compromised those things. Number one, you're indulging in idol worship and sexual immorality. And number two, he rebukes them because they're allowing preachers to preach this garbage in their church. So you know what ultimately begins to happen here? People begin to hear stuff that it's okay. It's okay if you do those things. And before long, we try to justify our behaviors with stuff like this. Well, what I'm doing is not that bad. At least I'm not doing that. And you know what? On top of that, I go to church every Sunday. The problem with that is Jesus addresses this letter to the church. And did you get what he said? He said, I hate it, and you ought to hate it. Now, i got to get a hold of this right here, okay? This is a truth we all got to get right now. Jesus did not say, I hate that person. He said, I hate their deeds. I hate their sins. You know why the Lord is so anti-sin? Because the wages of sin is death. And Jesus puts everything in order for us. Not to harm us. Not to keep us from having fun. He does it because he understands what happens to sin in human beings' lives. And so he's writing to this church. Keep reading. Verse 16. Repent. Repent. Don't give in. Repent. You know what the word repentance means? It's twofold. It means an oral confession. I confess it out of my mouth. But repentance also means to do a 180. To turn from it. To say, Lord, I don't want to do that. You know one of the greatest things that can happen 
when you have sin or stuff in your life you need to repent of, I repent of it. And then I say, Father God, you've got to grace me to help me not to do that anymore. How many of you have ever tried to whip stuff in your own life? I lasted about two or three hours. <laughs> but when I begin to invite God back in to grace me, something happens. And I, I encourage you, if you've got areas in your life that have, have been bondage to you, Father God, grace me today. Grace me, Lord, I, I don't want to do those things. Grace me today. Keep reading. Repent. Or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. That's his judgment. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now listen real close. To him who overcomes. Think about all the stuff that he was bringing up in this chapter. He was bringing up idol worship. He was bringing up sexual immorality. He said, to him who overcomes. Think about this in this sense. The only way we overcome is the blood of Jesus. And when I say that right there, it takes all the pressure off of me. I said, Lord Jesus, I welcome your blood. That's Revelations 12, 11. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb. He goes on to say, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And the hidden manna is a spiritual nourishment for the faithful. He said, man, I'm, I'm going to bless you with some spiritual manna. You know, when we sang that song there, he's pushing back the darkness. When we begin to gravitate toward the things of God, God will help us. And so he said, I want to give you some spiritual manna. And he goes on. And I will give him a white stone. And that is a reward. There's some type of reward attached to that. And on the stone, a new name. Written which no one knows except him who receives it. And the new name refers to the imputed character of Jesus Christ. Everything I do, it's in the name of Jesus. Everything I do... In word or deed is in the name of Jesus. Whoo, wear that name out. The name of Jesus, the name of Jesus, the name of Jesus. Now go with me to the book of Matthew chapter 7. And as you're turning there, every one of us in this room are to avoid alliances, partnership, and even participation with sins of this world. I shouldn't be a part of that stuff when I know. And the Lord Jesus, He never wanted any of us to be neutral. You know what neutral is? It blends in. When I'm with the sinner, I act like the sinner. When I'm with the saint, I act like the saint. But even more so with the word neutral is a word lukewarm that you find in Revelations 3. In Revelations 3, he says, those who are lukewarm, you're not cold or you're not cold. You're not hot nor you're cold. I'll vomit you out of my mouth. Now, here in Matthew chapter 7, I want you to listen real close to this, okay? And let, let's be biblical here. Let's let the word of God teach us. Because this is a theology rocker right here. Now this is the end on the Sermon of the Mount. And I'm going to read verse 13 starting there. Watch what Jesus says. Be biblical here, okay? Enter by the narrow gate. The only gate or road to God's kingdom is down this narrow road, okay? 
It's going to be a narrow one. For wide is the gate, and broad or easy is the way that leads to destruction. One translation says, that wide gate or that wide road is the road or the highway to hell. Now look how he ends verse 13. And there are many that go in by it. And when I look at Jesus' words again, Jesus just didn't say words randomly. Jesus was very precise with his words. I believe he was like a laser. He was that precise. So he said, this road that leads to the road called hell is many on it. Because narrow is the gate, the gateway to life, but it's difficult. It's vigorous. The Amplified says it's contracted by pressure. You know what I think some of the pressure is? To get us to compromise. He said it's tough. It's not an easy road. But it's the road that leads to life. And there are a few who find it. Now when I look at Jesus' words there. He said there's this one road there's many on. And this other road there's few on. Was Jesus talking about eternity here? Was Jesus telling me and you. That more won't make it than will make it. Now if you've been in this series here. We talked about the parable of the virgins in Matthew 25. The parable of the the, the virgins. Represent ten people. That were born again. But five made it and five didn't make it. Fifty percent. But now we get over on this and we see that many don't make it and few do make it. And so I said, Lord, you got to help me with this. So he takes me back to the promised land experience when the 12 spies go in. And remember, the two come back and said, we can do it. We're going to trust God. We're going to live for God. Let's do it. But the other ten said we can't. And when you read the final deal with the other ten. They never went in. Ever. Only two. Caleb and Joshua made it. And again I find out that 80% of them made it. I mean 80% of them didn't make it. And when I read stuff like this. it, It really, really, really rocks me. Now look at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Now again, I told you this is a theology rocker. Not everyone who's who's confessed me as Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. So who makes it? Keep reading. But he who... Does the will of my Father in heaven. See it's relative easy to get born again. And I'm not downplaying salvation. That's the beginning point. 
I mean, it's not real tough to walk down here and say, Lord Jesus, I ask you to come into my heart and be Lord of my life. Where the difficult thing happens is when we have to walk out our salvation. In other words, the proof of the pudding's in the eating. You gotta do a little walkie-walkie with your talkie-talkie. And this is what he's warning me and you. And in our society, we have so many people that will say, but I've confessed him as Lord. But do you understand what Jesus said? This, this has been an incredible series for me in many ways. After the first week that I preached on it, I don't get sick. And I got incredibly sick. I don't know how many days I ran a fever. And I came in here and prayed one day and the Lord said, you're preaching on stuff that he doesn't like. And I can tell you right now, for the last five weeks on this, and you can, you can have my wife verify this, I sleep like a baby at night. She said, you, if, you get sl- if you get still in 30 seconds, you're asleep. And I said, I know, I'm out. God blesses my little sleepy body. I don't know how many times in these five weeks I wake up in the middle of the night. And I find myself waking up saying, Father God, grace us. Give us grace today, Father God. And I say, Father God, I don't want to go to hell. And I don't want people to go to hell. And this has become so real to me. And and, and at times people say, well, if this is such a, a tough subject to talk on, then why are you doing it? Because I'm told to in Ezekiel 33. That if I don't, I have the blood of you on my hands. And I don't want that. But I also want to let you know the truth. That we live in a society and you get around people and people think everybody's going to heaven. And I I gasp when I hear that. Again, I'm not better than any other people But I'm going to live by the word of God. And if I live by this word, the only way to heaven is through the Son. And the only way in this is when I receive him as Lord of my life. And I live like he's Lord of my life. And I'm not preaching perfectionism. But I am preaching when I do blow it that I I repent. And I don't willfully practice sin. Thank you for listening today. For more information, please visit faithchurchlubbock.com.